You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Hey guys, welcome. My name is Randall, one of the leaders here at Hub City. Good to see you guys. Hey, just as a means of just a few quick things before we jump into the sermon, um, as, as a reminder. So at Hub City, we, we love to, to say this all the time. Um, one, of our, one of our goals from, from day one was that, that we really felt a compulsion that, that rather than our desire was to bring the city of Albany to church, we wanted to bring church, the, the life of the kingdom of God to the city of Albany. And so to that end, we always ask this question, like, how are we engaging with the city? And, and we like to, to say, like, what is the city doing? Right? And, then, and then we can answer that question, like how do we get to partner with the city? How do we get to join the city with what they're doing? How do we get to s- just put ourselves out and, and serve the city? And so to that end, there's, there's a lot of things that happen just right here, right downtown. Um, and, and we just so happen to be right here, right downtown. Now we're here on Sundays, but there's a, there's a lot of other things that happen outside of a Sunday. And so um, we look at like what the Albany Downtown Association is doing, and they do a lot, and, and a lot of those things are back on the table now. They've kind of been put on hold through COVID. So one of the things that we get to participate with the city is, is coming up this Saturday, and they have back on the table their downtown trick-or-treat, and we're excited about that. Now, we've done that pre-pandemic, um, and what we did is we hosted like a carnival out here and handed out candy, and we're doing that again. It's this Saturday, okay? And so a lot of you have been bringing candy. You can still do that, although we don't have a, a Sunday between now and Saturday. So if you have candy to bring, you can bring it, drop it off Saturday morning. We still need plenty of candy to hand out. Um, like the whole city is down here doing that. So there's a couple other ways that you can be involved. Our high school group has graciously offered to like host this carnival. And so there's going to be some high school students out helping us with that, with these carnival games. But they really, and and I believe in this vision too, and I think it's important, we really want more integration. We have a lot of our high school students that show up here on Tuesday nights that that don't come to Hub City. Maybe they don't go to church outside of that. And so we want more integrations. Like one of the things that's happening, if you haven't been asked yet, um, my family is going to do this at least a couple times. We're going to host the high school the high school group on a Tuesday, they're going to be at our house. So we want more and more integration from who Hub City is and like they are a part of us. And so one of the ways that you can partner with them is to volunteer this Saturday and help help them as they put on this carnival. And so we need some bodies down here Um, that could be helping to show up at nine o'clock in the morning and help us set everything up. We're hoping to be outside. We're hoping that's going to work. It's not too wet and rainy. Um, and so decorating, setting everything up outside, or maybe you just have the time to give from 11 to 1 to be down here and help with the students run these games. And so those are a couple of things that you can volunteer to. So um, I don't know if we found, we had a sign-up sheet. It's maybe not, we didn't find it. I don't know where Matt, it is, it's back up there. It's right on that table. So you can sign up today um, on your way out. Or you can email me at randall at hubcity.com and let me know that you're interested in volunteering for that. 
We're excited about it, again, like the whole city. Or maybe it just looks like this for you. Maybe you just want to join. Maybe you and your family want to come down and just downtown trick-or-treat and join in with, with what the city's doing. I'm gonna let y'all fight it out as to whether or not you think trick-or-treating and Halloween is bad. I don't, I don't really care about that conversation right now. We just, we just wanna serve the city and we wanna join the city, okay? So um, yeah, help us out with that. It's gonna be fantastic. And then if you are a dude in the room and you are planning on eating some burgers, some brats, and shooting some shotguns today, um, man, we'd love to have you. If you don't know anything about that, that's happening today right after our service. We're gonna huddle up here. Um, I've got the address, so it's on some private property, and we haven't been advertising that for a couple different reasons. So if you wanna go, just huddle up right after the gathering, and then I'll get the address to you guys, and we can carpool out, and it's gonna be a good time. So we're probably a couple hours worth of shooting, eating, if you don't want to touch a gun, that's totally fine. Just come out, hang out, and, and eat some good food and hang out with some guys. It's going to be a great time. So, sound good. Any questions? Anything else going on? Nope. That, all right. Sounds good. Uh, we're just going to jump right into this. Um, so, if you guys wouldn't mind um, standing with me as we read God's Word, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14, 25 to 35. says, Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which you are desiring to build the tower, or which of you desiring to build the tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him or to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace." So therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word to us today. This is a challenging, challenging word for those of us in the room that claim to be your followers. Father, may you reveal your heart for us today. May you reveal what Jesus is getting at. It's, it's challenging us, but may we live lives of obedience to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Guys, snag a seat. Um, you can grab a Bible too and open that up. We're going to be in this here for a bit. Man, I don't like this passage. I was just talking with I was just talking with Seth a second ago, and I said, "Yeah, this passage has been confronting me and challenging me for the whole time I've been a follower of Jesus." I, I think it was meant to, right now. If you're hearing this for the first time, you might be going like, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't think I like it either. Like, what is this guy, Jesus, saying? Isn't this supposed to be like loving 
Jesus, inclusive Jesus, why is he saying, like, if you don't do these things, which are very challenging things, you cannot claim to be my disciple. Well, the thing about this is it, it really makes much more sense if you look at the entirety of, of what has happened, jumping all the way back to, to like Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 10, right? And what you see in verse 10 is Jesus approaches this woman that has been bent and broken and disabled her whole life, right? Um, she, she's not able to move. It actually, the text actually says that like her back is bent and not straight and she's been unable to straighten out, right? And now keep in mind, all that Jesus does, when he shows up from day one, he said, I am here to bring the kingdom. And all of his teaching is about the kingdom. And we're looking specifically at these short stories that Jesus told alongside a teaching about the kingdom called parables that is meant to enforce what he just taught about the kingdom of God. So, so what do we learn from about Luke 13 all the way through? Well, starting with this woman, what we learned about the kingdom of God is that those things that are bent and broken in his kingdom get straightened and they get restored. And he goes on to teach this message about this mustard seed and the kingdom of God is just like it. It can be a small, it can go underground, but it will continue to grow and thrive. And then Turning over to Luke chapter 14, Jesus is having this feast with some unseasonable people. And he goes on to tell these parables about these great banquets where the least of these get first place at the table. And that's who he's building his kingdom with. And so it becomes challenging, right? Because it feels like he's saying, like, all are welcome, all get to come to the table, all things are fixed, but if you don't do these very challenging things, you don't get a claim to be my disciple. So we're looking at this passage today in Luke's gospel, and of all the things that Jesus said, this is definitely some of the hardest to comprehend and digest. It's just one of the harder sayings of Jesus, and just like it probably did for the crowd that was following him that day that he said it, Today is going to hurt a little bit. It might be a little painful for some of us, but I think Jesus knows that sometimes things have to hurt a little bit in order to bring some healing. When I was 19 years old, I got in a fight. But not with a person, um, with, with a mountain, with, with, with hoodoo, right? Which to this day, I will tell you, is certainly steep. Um, it is deep, but on that day, for my parents' insurance, it was not cheap at all. So um, I, I went off this jump. Now, some of you have heard this story before, and you've seen the, the scar to prove it, but I went off this jump and did the worst thing possible. A snowboard went directly above my head, and I put my arms down to break my fall, which they did. They did a really good job of breaking my fall. Um, as, I, as I sat up, I could see lefty here and went like, okay, things are all right. Now, like, nothing hurt. I didn't hit my head, but I couldn't see my right arm. That's because my right arm was bent into all sorts of different ways and basically, like, snapped at half right here at the humor. So that's a pretty big bone to break. Now, so I set up, no pain, but I couldn't see my arm and I couldn't feel my arm. I was convinced that it had cleanly snapped off, right? <laughs> my buddies next to me, you could just tell, like, you know when you're hurt, or you know the look that you have when you see somebody else that's hurt, you can just see it on their face. They were like, uh. So I don't know what was happening. All I know is that the first person to me fortunately happened to be a, a nurse 
and she worked in the emergency room, right, at a hospital. And so I was like, hey, um, where's my arm? And she's like, it's there, um, but I, I got to do something. And I got to do something that is going to make it so we're able to fix it, but it's going to hurt really, really bad. And I was like, and again, up until this point, no pain. I don't know if you've broken bones before, but breaking bones has a weird quality that sometimes you don't initially feel it. A lot of times there's other things going on, right? Like I broke my hand one time in Moab, like first ride, broke my hand, but I also bit through my upper lip. So I felt that pain, didn't feel this pain. So that's what breaking bones sometimes is like. So anyways, back to the story. The thing that she had to do was to take this very broke and bent, and ar- bent arm and like move it back so she could put it here and they could bandage me and I could get you know a ride down in the little snow cart thing. So that was the point at which I almost passed out when she did that. Like that was incredibly, incredibly painful. And then just the rest of the story went on to be just more pain, like driving in the back of my rig, laying down, like down Santa Ann Pass to the Lebanon Hospital, and every single like corner we went around, my torso and everything else was shifting. I could hear the bones in here, you know, yeah. And so it's horrible story. So anyways, that's just that point of like sometimes something like really painful has to happen first before we can be set right and fixed, right? And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's basically addressing the crowd, right? And he's going to say, listen, this is going to be a painful conversation, but through that pain, there's going to be some healing. There's going to be some growth in you. Listen, Jesus knows that sometimes in order for us to grow, for us to be restored and become the people that he's calling us to be, he's going to have to bring up some things in our life that are bent and broken, and it will be uncomfortable, but he does it for our good. He does it because he loves us. He does it because what he's after in our lives and what he's trying to build in his kingdom needs these type of conversations, right? It needs these difficult conversations, but ultimately he's doing it for our own good. So let's just walk back through this. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, which is always a thing. Jesus always had a crowd, right? And it makes sense. Like he was meeting tangible needs. Like you look at what he just did. He's, he's fed people. He's fixed people. He's sometimes people are just attracted because he was controversial. He said sometimes some really crazy things. So he's got this large crowd that's traveling after him. Now, listen, like that fires for me. Like I did youth ministry for years and it was always about the crowd. It was like, how many kids could you attract to this event? And it always like felt good to attract a large crowd. So Jesus must be feeling really good about attracting this large crowd, right? Well, is he? Because look what he says. And, and turning to them, he said, right? So for me, back in the day, if I look out and there's like a couple hundred high school kids there, I'm like, yes, I did it. I attracted the crowds, right? So if you remember, Jesus just got done with this dinner party where he's teaching all these like subversive and controversial things about God's kingdom and who's welcome into it. And as a result, this massive crowd starts following. This crowd like comes to him and they're like, hey, we want to follow you. And it makes sense. Like if you look at it, he's teaching some pretty incredible things. He's just got done saying that the kingdom of God is for people just like them, like the crowds that were following. He's telling them that despite their mess 
and their failure and their brokenness, their social standing, their otherness, that through him, God will accept them and love them and bring them into his kingdom. It's an incredibly attractive message to the crowds, so it would make sense that there's a large, large crowd that would be following him. But what happens then is Jesus stops he looks at this great sea of humanity that's following him, and instead of placating them with this very like easy message, and, and by making things just easier for them, he drops this really difficult truth bomb. Look at verse 26 and 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That sounds like a, a thing a crazy person would say, right? Like, like imagine a politician at a rally addressing a crowd and saying, I promise if you vote for me, you're voting to, to lose your homes and your families. I guarantee higher taxes with, with lower wages. Like everything that you love and is important to you, I will make illegal, so do I have your vote? So just imagine like if a politician was honest, right? Like that's crazy, right? So, so with Jesus' statement, minimally there's a lot of things in there that seem to violate, if you think about it, either Jewish law or custom or tradition. And then there's a lot of things that he just said that go on and, and seem to, to go directly against other principles that we discover later in the New Testament, Right? So, so this is the, the least attractional thing I've ever heard, right? But Jesus is setting the terms and conditions of what it means to follow him. And unlike what we all do with every single user agreement, which is we don't read it, we just said, yep, I accept it, Jesus demands more from us. Like he's saying, you have to read the terms and conditions of what it means to follow me. It's such a loaded and nuanced statement. But, but let me say this, however heavy and controversial that this may sound for like 21st century sensibilities, for Jesus's original audience, for first century Jews, this was mind-blowing, especially when he starts to, to cut against family. Because think about it, how we think about like our family, how we think about our spousal relationships, like we think about the person that we're married to. This is the person who we find friendship with, comfort and love and security and safety. For biological family in the first century, that's where that existed first, right? Family was the single most important and significant relationship in a person's life. It was this connective tissue that held it all together for you. Families today are, tend to be smaller. They tend to be more nuclear. In that day, they were large and they were extensive. They were the source of provision, security, safety, comfort, and love, identity, and purpose. It's where you were taken care of. And to be separated from family meant isolation, and you were extremely vulnerable in that culture. So to abandon them over something like this was monumental, right? That's just not true today in our culture. Some of us have family members that we haven't talked to in two years because of masks, right? And, and for them to say, hey, you need to hate this family, right? That's incredibly controversial at face value for Jesus in this culture. So it's incredibly easy for us to just kind of walk away from relationships today because the consequences of our safety and security are not as severe, as in Jesus' day when he was saying that. But for the crowds listening to it, 
This was not easy. This wasn't trivial to digest or to live out, right? So, so family was everything. It was the primary and most important relationship a person could have. And for Jesus to say to the crowds and confront them with this, to say, if you're going to follow me, here's the conditions, that these relationships have to now have this unique thing to them that you would hate them, right? That's so challenging. And then he moves on. From there, if that wasn't enough, he moves on to this imagery about the cross, right? Listen, we look back now through the the lens of redemptive history, and and we see the cross, and we see that as this place where, yes, Jesus died, but we also see it as this event where God's great redemptive action took place. But that thing had not yet taken place in this story which is Jesus' substitutionary death, right? So for us, we hear that, and we think about the cross as a place of like humbling worship. For the crowds, they hear this cross, and they only think about this painful, tortuous, torturous device that this foreign occupying nation would use to kill political dissidents and rebels. And they would have this fresh reminders littered throughout their cities where like rotting corpses of of those people would be hanging from crosses, right? So it's a device of torture and death, and often the victims of which were made to carry to their place of execution in an act of shame and humiliation and torture. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to claim to be my disciple, my follower, you're going to have to be willing to endure all that it means to carry a cross, This is that thing that you associate with torture, with death, with execution, with shame, with humiliation. Carry that, right? If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to hate the most important relationship in your life, and you're going to have to be willing to come and die. That's what it takes to be my disciple. That is not the easy, fun-loving, cuddling with lambs Jesus that we like to hear about, right? This is confrontive and difficult Jesus, the Jesus who says hard things. So just to leave this all at face value, it's going to leave us confused, right? Because there's so many questions that we like, then like probably the biggest thing that we're going to hear from this is, okay, like what do I have to do then? How do I perform in such a way that I could be a disciple of Jesus and be included in that, right? Um, And maybe for some of us, we're in here today and we're hearing this for the first time, maybe it turns us off from Jesus just a bit. We're like, wow, like he's saying some crazy things here. So, so, so what is he really getting at in these statements? Is, is he really telling us to hate the most important people in our lives, to, to nail ourselves to a cross? Well, here's the deal. Let's start with this simple rule of of like how we approach scriptures, how we understand scriptures, right? Um, And and it's this, we we need to let the scriptures interpret themselves. And what that means is when we come across something that's tricky or that we don't understand, the first thing we need to do is is look at other things. Like when it's unclear to us, where are there other places where things are clear, where they're easy to understand, right? To help put the tricky and unclear things into context. And, And that'll help us to understand what Jesus is really driving at here in this passage, right? So we know that the very clear and understandable message of Jesus is that we are to love God and to love others, right? 
And so we're not to hate others, we're not to hate God, but we're to love other people, to love and care for our spouse and for our children, to honor our father and our mother. So just because Jesus is saying something here that seems to contradict this, we have like mountains of other places where Jesus clearly tells us, love other people, honor your mother and father, live these realities out, right? So is he contradicting himself? Is he contradicting scripture here, right? He he even goes on to say even more challenging things about who we're like, we're supposed to love people who are against us, right? We're supposed to love our critics. We're supposed to love our enemies. So, So it would be wildly inconsistent then if Jesus were truly saying that we should hate, despise, or disregard anyone. He would be contradicting himself and scriptures if that were true. So, so what is he really doing? Well, he's setting up this contrast, right? And there's other places in the Bible we see there's places in the Old Testament where we see this language, and he's setting up this contrast, right? He's helping us to see what is most important to his followers, because following Jesus should come with a radical reorientation, a radical reframing of everything that we value and live for, right? So he's setting up this very stark contrast. He's saying that the the love that his followers have for God must be so vastly superior and supreme that any other love would look like hatred by comparison. That, that in the life of his followers, he gets first dibs on our affections. He is preeminent in our life and our love. And Jesus has to bring this up because he knows that living in this sin-sick world, how tempting and easy it is for his image bearers to take up first love with anything else beside him. So much so that he would be willing like, to, to say these very difficult things, right? And he knows and he's confronting us with this because he wants to become in the life of his followers what is most significant and important to us. And everything else in our life would look like hatred by comparison because of our deep abiding love for him, right? So it's not that we don't love others, and it's not that we don't love the good things that he gives to us. He just needs to reorder those things because all too often, what do we do with those things? Even those good things, our relationship, right? Our activities, our hobbies, food, whatever, right? It's all so easy, like Paul talks about, for us to actually end up worshiping the good things that he's created for us to enjoy rather than we do the creator. So he's trying to reorder that for us, that we first worship and love him, that that he is preeminent so that he can reorder our relationship to all of those things. So when we compare our allegiance to Jesus, right, to, to any other relationship or any other thing, the difference should be stark and obvious. It could be described in these very black and white or polarizing ideas of love or hate. He's saying to this vast crowd, you've now been following me for a while and I get it. I've fed some of you. I've healed some of you. I've saved some of you, but that's not what following me means. Following means I get first in line. I get preeminence over all things in your life. You see, Jesus Unlike what I used to do, Jesus wasn't interested in building a crowd. He was interested in in making disciples because he's building a kingdom and he has a church and he has a mission for that church and he can't have his church being half-hearted in what he has us for. 
right? So he's saying to that vast crowd, follow me, put me as preeminence over your life. And, and make no mistake, it doesn't say this, but, but, but we see this in other places where Jesus confronts the crowd with hard and difficult things. Like in John chapter 6, he said some really weird things about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and everybody peaced out. They're like, that's weird, we're out. So no doubt, while it doesn't say this, no doubt people probably walked away. They heard this and they said, I don't, that's just too weird. I can't do these things, right? He's looking at them and he's confronting and he's saying in no uncertain terms, following me is costly, right? And, and I'm not out for your comfort, I'm out for your absolute love and faithfulness. He's saying, if you want to keep going, you better know what you're here for. You better know what you're in for because there's a price to be paid, right? Are you really sure that you want this? Because let me be clear, it will cost you something. Now let's pause for a second because remember, right? We're in this series on parables, right? And we haven't even gotten to a parable yet. We just got this like very hard confrontive teaching from Jesus. And so the next five verses are the parable part. And, and there's actually two short little stories that Jesus throws out to come alongside this very difficult teaching. They're brief. And honestly, they're, they're really straightforward. They, they don't require much exposition here, right? So he says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For you, for if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and was not able to finish. And then the second one, he says this, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king, won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. So, so Jesus, once again, but, but now through these short stories, he's saying, listen, if, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to follow me, you better think it through, right? It's best not to start something that you have no intention of finishing. And, and he causes us to kind of evaluate our intentions with these stories. Um, and, and he's bringing up some things, right? He says, like, which one of you would, like, this is crazy. Like, would, you would not start to build a tower without doing some, like, pri price shopping first. Like, go to Home Depot, go online, like, figure out, like, how much of this, how much of the stone's going to cost me? How much is the wood? Like, how much do I need? Because if you start building something, but then run out of money or resources or maybe just interest, other people are going to look at that and they're going to say, like what, like, what are you thinking? They, they might even poke fun at you a little bit, right? This next picture, this is a picture of the Toro de, de David, and it's in Caracas, Venezuela, right? Um, it was started in 1990 and famously never saw its com completion, right? So it does not have elevators, um, they never, they just stopped building it, right? Um, there's no guardrails, there's no windows. Interestingly enough, to this day, there's about 5,000 squatters that have taken up residence in this place. Um, they, they, it's crazy, they figured out how to put electricity in there on their own and plumbing. There's like gyms apparently and like workout gyms in there. But to this day, it's known as this thing that, that, that the architect and the builders are, are mocked to this day. They started it, they didn't count the cost, and they were never able to fill it and complete it and build it to completion, right? So if, if that doesn't make any sense, then he tells story number two. And listen, like, who doesn't love a good underdog story, right? We all do, 
right? We love it, right? We love a good underdog story. We love to hear stories of, especially it was like for me, like it fires heavily when it relates to like, like, like war stories, right? We, we love to hear stories of someone or some team or some platoon overcoming insurmountable odds and, and not just surviving, but decimating the enemy. But the reality is that so rarely happens, right? So he asks, like, what type of leader or king would, if, if they're going to war against someone, they're facing this great threat, this great battle, who would not assess what they have? How many troops do they have in place, right? And if they're outnumbered by, say, like 10,000 troops, and it does not seem that you could win that war, you would first sue for peace, right? You would try to reach a peaceful solution. You would not just head in knowing that you will not overcome those odds, that you will not be victorious, right? So once again, he's saying, stop and pause, and do not start something that you will not be able to finish, right? Before you too swiftly just say, yes, I'm in, just know that there's going to be a cost, right? So just like Ice Cube, he says, you better chickety check yourself before you riggedy wreck yourself, right? Now, let me just say this first, right? We don't, I don't think we really have like a framework for this. Like, like we don't really understand what it means for Jesus to call his followers to a great cost, because that would require that, that he would require something of us or that, that life would need to be recalibrated to follow him. Like, I, I, we, don't, we don't have the full framework for this, right? At, at least not like his original readers and listeners did. Like, like today, in so many other places where Christianity is not front and center in culture, the decision to follow Jesus is not only reforming and reorienting, it, it, it is completely life-altering. Like some people today where they decide to follow Jesus, literally do lose family and loved ones. They lose income. They lose their lives. So, so like, that's just not true for us, right? The idea of, of a faith that is costly in our country is, is quite foreign to us, right? Most of us have not experienced any real repercussions for becoming a follower of Jesus. In fact, many of us were simply born into this culture of faith, right? So what happens when it doesn't seem like being a follower of Jesus costs that much. So what happens? Well, Jesus is often relegated to like the, the bench in our life, right? He sits on the bench and, and, and we'll put him in when we need him. But for the most part, like we're the varsity players in our own lives and we just tag Jesus in when we need something that he like specializes in, right? Instead of Jesus being central in our lives, he comes alongside and like, enhances our lives, adds some flavor to our life. That's why American Christianity comes up with some pretty crazy stuff, right? From wealth and health to Christian nationalism, when Christ is not superior or supreme and following him is not costly and grounded in gospel truth, man, we lose the plot real quick, right? But, but when we hold all of those distorted views of Jesus up against the biblical narrative, now we have two choices, one, to hold on to them and ignore the scriptures, or two, to let them dissolve and decay in the light of what God's word reveals, and to believe and to be the followers that Jesus, he's calling us to, and to believe that Jesus is primarily not a life enhancer, but he, he is a, it is a costly reorientation of everything that we are and hold on to, right? Or we can just hold on to that untruth. And we can just say, like, no, this is who Jesus is. We just bring him in when we need him. 
but that's not what he's calling, calling his followers to here, right? So listen, Jesus is not primarily concerned about making our lives better. Like, yes, of course, like we're made whole. We experience shalom. We're, we're made alive in him. But making our life better is not his primary promise, right? To, to make our life better, easier, or more comfortable that's not what he's after. In fact, he says in several places that life as his followers will be more difficult and more uncomfortable. He, say, he says things like this in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Or in Matthew 5, when he says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. God never says he primarily exists to make things go well because Jesus wasn't simply interested in creating a crowd. Rather, he wanted to make disciples and he would let them know that following him would be costly. Then look at verse 33. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Here's what he means. He, whoever isn't willing to say that, that my life isn't about these things anymore. It's about Jesus and about Jesus alone and his king, kingdom. So, so, so take all this other stuff, right? Do with it what you want. If, if you want to hold on to those things, he's saying you, you truly cannot follow me. Like if I say I want to follow you, but these things are just so much more important like, that's why this text is so confrontive for me. Again, 25 years now of following Jesus, and every time I read this, it confronts and cuts against a heart that says, I want to value this more than I value Jesus, or at least put it as equal importance, right? I, I, won't, I won't let go of these things and wholeheartedly follow you, because if I'm unwilling to do that, like what Jesus says here, it's so painfully clear, like you cannot count yourself as one of my followers. So it's costly following Jesus, and he wants us to know and deeply consider it. So if you can take a look at your life, take an inventory of it, and truly say that by following Jesus, not much has changed, right? It, it hasn't radically reoriented your values, your motives, your desires, your longings, your decisions, your entire life. Like the hard thing in this text is you may not actually be following Jesus at all. Because when you follow Jesus, you're swept up into something so much bigger than you. You get called into salvation by faith through grace. You get called into this great mission that is so much more important than the trivial things in this world to partner with Jesus in his reconciliation of all things. You're brought into his kingdom and family. You are the church. Jesus is not interested in building a crowd. He's building a people that would live out this great mission. And where Jesus is the king and the head of the church, he's the one running stuff. And we are there because we were bought with a price, not because we earned it or we're good enough. So don't think performance in this verse. We're not there because we're born into it at the right time or the right place or into the right family, not because of our performance or our talents or our abilities, but through his finished work, through the payment of his gracious death and resurrection. So here's the deal. If he is king and we did nothing to contribute to that, then there is simply nothing that we can say to Jesus, you can't have this. 
I'm keeping this. If we contributed nothing, then there is nothing we have to negotiate with or for. Like, hey, Jesus, you paid a great price in your life and your death, but I think it's only fair that I get to keep my pride, right? The reality is when we come through faith to Jesus, it leaves nothing in our life untouched. I just discovered this great story about... um, this, this indigenous missionary in India. Her name is Pandita Ramabai. She um, lived in the late 1800s. She was, her story is fascinating. She was born into like a high caste system of wealth, um, but through multiple different interactions that I don't have time to get into, she actually decided to become a follower of Jesus, right? Um, she then, and, and, and because of that, right, she lost her family, she lost the connection to that upper high caste system, but she gave herself away to fiercely defending women's rights in this oppressive caste system, right? And so after deciding to follow Jesus and losing everything, she gave her life to something so unique to build this kingdom. And she said this, a life totally committed to God has nothing to fear, nothing to lose, nothing to regret, Like holding on to trivial things was simply not a reality for her, right? But man, how many of us claw and scratch and grasp and fight against that type of commitment all the time, clutching to the things of this world that vie for our affection and our attention, not realizing what Christ has for us is so much greater. It reminds me of what Aslan said in The Magician's Nephew, Oh, Adam's son, how cleverly you defend your sin, yourselves against all that might do you good. And Jesus would have us look at every aspect of our lives and say, this simply does not belong to me anymore. Our relationships, our marriages, our kids, our occupations, our time, our resource, our comfort, whatever it is. And when we recognize that we offer those things to him to be used for his glory and his kingdom, We've counted the cost and we're following him. Paul actually reflects this same sentiment in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Paul isn't saying that we have to build a pyre and throw ourselves onto it sacrificially. What he's driving at here is that our worship is now our lives in his hands. That the way that we worship God now is to say that, God, you get it all, right? It's it's our lives in his hands for his plans and his glory. Listen, if we approach our faith like it's never supposed to cost us anything, anytime we're confronted with the choice to follow Jesus and that might negatively impact our lives, that it might actually cost us something, we'll always choose the easy way out. We'll hold on to our comfort and make an excuse as to why that's important. We'll steward our time to serve our own agenda, however we justify it, not his. We'll fiercely defend our reputation rather than giving it away to glorify his. But Jesus would confront us here that through this passage and through these parables to say following him doesn't look like this. And you, could, you would do well to count the cost before you even start. And the tighter we grasp a hold of the things that he's calling us to let go of, the further we'll be from what it truly means to be his disciple. So your allegiance to Jesus will have to come before your allegiance to this world. Now, if that's not making you squirm a little bit, like we should probably take your pulse, right? Because it's so 
challenging, right? It should make you uncomfortable because it sounds so extreme in the things that he says, right? And, and he starts with those relationships because those are so important. We don't hate our parents. We don't hate our kids. We don't hate our spouse. We don't give up our life. But in comparison, we just love him so much more than those things that it would seem like we hate them, right? So listen, I think Jesus wants us to respond like this for a reason because Jesus is simply saying something in any other context we are okay with, right? Because when you inverse it, like when you take inventory of this in the opposite direction, what do you discover? Like if you say like, how much time do I give to this particular activity? Like whatever it is, right? And, and at what cost, right? Like so for me, obviously, like riding bikes, of course, right? And I go like, well, how much time do, what do I sacrifice to do that? Who, who does it cost in my life when I do that, right? Like when we, when we do it that direction, we'll find out really quickly what we worship. We'll find out really quickly what is preeminent to us because we do it all the time. Right? We sacrifice things and people in our life to pursue those activities, to pursue those passions. And Jesus is saying, like, let's, let's have that reversed. Right? Pursue me first. Like When it's something we really love, we sacrifice all the time in the pursuit of our passions, our desire. We'll do anything and sacrifice anything to get what we love. Whatever has our attention, our affection, our desire, our heart, we'll sacrifice anything to get that thing. So if Jesus is most valuable to us, that following him is worth it, so much that in comparison, Jesus is confronting us to say, it would seem like you hate all those other things. And then look at verse 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? If it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile, it is thrown away. He who has ears to let him hear, hear. Church, let me just say this real quick. Um, there's a lot to be said about this. There's a lot of different ideas about what this is. Like, um, there's a lot of ways that we present this last little passage. I think, like, is it about enhancing? Is it about flavoring? Is it about preserving? I think the reality is this. Jesus is building a church, right? And that church is going to be made up of people that would say, by comparison, how faithful I am to Jesus, how much I love Jesus, how much I'm willing to pursue Jesus it would seem like hatred for everything else, right? And, and he's building a church of people that would put him as preeminent and superior above all things. Because one of the things that salt does is it just creates this uniquely different thing. And he's calling us as a church to be uniquely different, right? To be the people of God that would say, before all things, we put Jesus first. Like we put our comfort first, right? When we put our comfort first, then we, then we cease to become the church. But when we put him first over our comfort, then we're the church. Like just think about this. Like how many of you last week, if you're real honest, were a little distracted by what was happening in the room? How many of you might have been a little uncomfortable by what was happening in the room last week, right? Some of you may not have been paying attention. Some of you weren't here, right? But, but some of us might have been right? And we should be confronted by that reality. We should be confronted by the reality of like, man, we're not here to build something that affords you comfort. We're here 
even if it means and costs us our comfort to say, like, even the least of these get a place at the table. They should be welcomed amongst us, and we should be loving and serving them, right? But we're just building something that is for that that just looks like us and sounds like us and smells like us and is just like us. And we can look out here and go like, yeah, it's just a bunch of us's. We're incredibly comfortable. And Jesus would say, I'm not after your comfort, right? Let me push against that. If a salt loses its saltiness, man, you know what it's good for? The manure pile. And he's saying, church, if you won't live out this great values of the kingdom of God and give a seat at the table for the least of these, I'll throw you in the manure pile. You're that worthless to me, right? And when, you, when I reorder your values, when I am preeminent, when I am superior, you've counted the cost, then you're the church. So let's respond today to that good news that Jesus is building a kingdom and his church not of comfort, right, but of his heart and value for us being our first love. Let me pray, and we'll respond. Father, we thank you.